Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him, a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm excited to have Zach Rallo uh, here uh, to preach uh, to our church. Um, having Zach here makes me feel a little old, to be honest. Zach was uh, a part of my youth group back when I was uh, a youth pastor at Chapelgate Presbyterian Church. And uh, though I've stayed the same age, Zach has grown up into a <laughs> wonderfully mature young man. Uh, Zach uh, graduated uh, with a philosophy degree, right, from Eastern University. Uh, he is a student at Reformed Theological Seminary um, in uh, D.C. He is uh, under care in our presbytery, which means he is kind of in the pipeline to become uh, a pastor in our denomination. He works right now as a, a youth director at uh, River's Edge Church, which is in Colum- right around Columbia, uh, Marilyn. Uh, Zach's a wonderful young man. Uh, it's so exciting to see uh, uh, these young uh, students grow up and to not just be students anymore, but to be colleagues in ministry and more important, to be really good friends. And Zach is that. So uh, welcome, Zach, to share God's word with us this morning. Thanks, Patrick. Can I, as much as I love this Bible here, can I, uh, I'm just going to here, I'm going to set it down, down here. Whoops. Uh, how's everyone doing this morning? It's, uh, it's a real honor and privilege for me to be here. Um, I'm really thrilled that Patrick asked me to be here. As, as he said, uh, he was my youth pastor, and so it's, it's a, a privilege for me to now be with you as his congregation. That's a really, really cool thing for me. And, um, and so it's an honor to be here and to worship with you this morning and to bring God's word. Um, so I want to do what Patrick said was kind of a first for City Church. And I want to show a video to sort of open um, the message this morning. And so Sheriff is going to go ahead and play it, and then uh, we'll, we'll talk. I'm Debbie Elnatan, and I'm here to tell you the story behind the Upsy. Rotem was our second child, and he was born with cerebral palsy. He cried almost the entire first year. He was probably frustrated because like any other child, he wanted to move and be active and satisfy his curiosity, but he couldn't. And one day his physical therapist looked at us and said, your child doesn't know what his legs are. He doesn't have consciousness of his legs. That was a shocking thing for a mother to hear about her child. So I cried probably the first week or two and, <laughs> and started to walk him. Great. Thanks for, thanks for doing that, Sheris. Um, so, so the situation, you know, in case you guys couldn't hear, uh, the situation is we have this mom, Debbie, whose son, Rotem, is born with cerebral palsy. And in Rotem's case, what this means, you know, cerebral palsy takes many different um, effects based on the particular child. But in in Rotem's case, his brain is unable to process the fact that he has legs. And of course, like any child, he wants to be able to move around, to be independent, to go and explore the world that he's been brought into. 
but because of this condition, he is unable to use his legs for that purpose. And we'll come back to Debbie and to Rotem and to their story, but for now, let us imagine, imagine the shock that would be on the face of the disciples if they were to go to Jesus, which they do in our passage this morning, and if they were to ask him, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom that you have come to establish? And imagine the shock that would be on their face if he took a little boy like Rotem, who can't even stand or move on his own, and if he said, guys, this, this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Imagine the shock that would be on their faces. This is essentially the situation that the disciples find themselves in in our passage this morning. When we look at our passage at verse 1, we read, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So in order for us to understand what the disciples are really asking here, in order for us to get um, the, the context behind their question, we have to talk just a little bit briefly about the social, political, religious context that they're in, um, in at this time in first century Judea. So for hundreds of years, the Jews have been awaiting the Messiah, right? This promised figure, the anointed one. And um, the, the reality about what the Jews are expecting is that they're expecting a, a political figure. They're not expecting someone, uh, a, a primarily religious figure. So for, for hundreds of years, the Jews have been under the thumb of different oppressing ruling nations. They've been under the thumb of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and now they're under the thumb of the, the Roman Empire, which has now expanded into the Middle East, into Palestine, and the Roman Empire has established a, a client governor to rule over the Jewish people. And, and the Jews don't like this fact they, they're, they're, because they remember the kingdom of Israel that had been established by God, the theocracy, the ruling uh, authorities that God had established, but now they're under the, the Roman Empire. And so the Messiah for the Jewish people is thought to be a deliverer from the oppressive nations which have come against the Jewish people. So, so the disciples, when they come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they expect him to overthrow the Romans, to establish a political nation-state in Israel, which will rule in, in the way that, that we see in the Old Testament, in the theocracy. Uh, and so Jesus, for them, they believe he is going to make the kingdom of Israel great among the nations Again, this is what every good Jew believed. It's what they had been taught by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so naturally, when the disciples come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they, view, they believe that he is going to reestablish a political kingdom. And here in our passage this morning, they want to know from Jesus who is going to be the greatest in this kingdom. Who is going to rule with you, Jesus? Who is going to be your right-hand man, essentially? And they want a name, is it Peter? Is it James? Is it John? Is it Andrew? Who is going to be great and glorious and powerful in the kingdom? They want to be acknowledged for the struggle and the faith that they have had because they're the only ones who acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. No one else does. And so they want to be acknowledged for their faith, for their good works, for their deeds. 
They want places of glory, honor, and status, and they want the most out of anyone who is the greatest. And most importantly for us to understand, they want to be acknowledged for their own accomplishments. They want to be acknowledged for their own personal holiness, their own ability to follow Jesus, because they get what so many people don't get. So, of course, they are the greatest. And now they want to know which individual is the absolute greatest because of their own personal holiness. They want to be defined by what they have done on their own. They want to stand before God and be judged worthy, be judged worthy of status and honor. And deep down, isn't this what we all want? Isn't this what we all want to be praised for what is good about us, for what we've done, for what we can contribute whether it's in our work or in our parenting or in our relationships or whatever it is, we want to be acknowledged for our strong character, for our excellent work ethic. The reality is that this human desire to stand on our own, on our own two feet before God, to be essentially independent of him, has been the defining human trait since Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve decided what? that they would rather be like God than be dependent on him. And, and we look at, for, for instance, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That represents man's desire to ascend to heaven without God, independent of him. Abraham, when he lacks an heir in his old age, decides to take matters into his own hands and create an heir through his servant, Hagar, rather than rely in faith on God's promise of an heir through Sarah. Uh, uh, The Israelites make their own God out of gold rather than waiting for the true God on Mount Sinai because they would rather be independent of him. Job thinks that he gets ethics better than God. Jonah thinks that he is better equipped to dispense justice than God. The scriptures are filled with the accounts of people who thought that they would be just fine and maybe even better than God. And this is still how we operate today, isn't it? We want to stand on our own. As someone who works with young people, with middle school and high school students, I see this even in, in our young people. There's, there's what's ha- in the 21st century, there's uh, this phenomenon happening called the professionalization of childhood. And maybe if you're a parent in here, you, you've experienced this with your own children. From earlier and earlier ages, children are being uh, conditioned to think that life is all about success, that in order for them to matter, they have to get one point better on the test. They have to have a better GPA. They have to have a higher batting average or a better shooting percentage or play the cello better or, um, or be in more prestigious extracurricular activities. And this professionalization of childhood speaks to, in my mind, it speaks to our culture's view of the meaning and purpose of life. It lets us know that as a society, we value people based on the level of success that they can achieve in comparison with one another. Uh, It could be in various different things, but it's all about success. How high can you climb the corporate ladder at your job? How much money can you make? How well can you parent? What kind of schools can your kids get into? How well can you provide for your family? The questions that we ask of ourselves all take the same form. And the form is, is essentially this, uh, uh, what can I do 
to have meaning and success on my own. See, essentially what humans have done since the beginning of history is we've created for ourselves a continuum or a spectrum. And we want to put ourselves on it so that we can evaluate one another, person versus person, man versus man, who's higher than me, who's lower than me, who had greater success, who has more accomplishments. And this is what the disciples were doing in our passage this morning. They're asking Jesus, hey, where am I on this spectrum? Who is the highest? Who is the highest on the spectrum? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because someone has got to be the best. Someone has to be able to contribute most to the kingdom. We want to quantify our objective worth and value. But why is this such a bad question? Why is this such a false question? We know it is because Jesus turns the tables on the disciples later in our passage. The reality is that the disciples assume wrongly and falsely that they have anything to contribute to the kingdom. They assume wrongly that they can contribute anything to the kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish. And that's why Jesus turns the tables on the disciples in his answer to their question in verses 2 through 4. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not a parent, uh, and I'm kind of glad for that fact, uh, but, but I did grow up as the oldest of four brothers, and one of them is, is really young. He's only 10. So, so I have seen a little bit firsthand of what, what Jesus means when he talks about the humble position of a child. When a young child begins to stand, to try to stand, or to try to walk, what, what's the sort of image that we have? We, we probably envision a parent sort of hunched over, right? Or even maybe on their knees, guiding the child as they take their first steps. That's what we see. Because what's going to happen if the parent doesn't help their child? What's going to happen if the parent lets go of their child? They're going to fall. They're going to fall. That's, that's just natural. And so imagine if the child were to refuse the help of the parent somehow. Imagine if you have this little six-month-old toddler and somehow he says, you know what, I got this. I'm going to take this on my own. What would happen? We know what would happen. It, he would fall. And that would just be, that would be impossible. And it would be kind of sad. It would be kind of sad, wouldn't it? Because children are supposed to depend on their parents. They're supposed to. It's natural. When I was in high school uh, and um, I went on one of these youth retreats that we always, if, you, if you've been involved in youth ministry, you know they do these retreats uh, and these sorts of things for a weekend or whatever. And on one of these retreats, I was struck by one of the illustrations that uh, one of these speakers used. And it's always stuck with me. What he did was he, he had a music stand like this and he sort of, he angled it flat and he pulled out a Barbie. He pulled out a Barbie doll, and he said, if someone can come up here, if someone can come up here and get this Barbie to stand on its own on this music stand, you know, if they let go and it will stand on its own, I'll give them 10 bucks. And so, of course, all the high school kids are getting pumped. They're like, all right, I got this. I'm going to, I have the strategy. I believe that I can do this. I believe that, that this will work. And he brings someone up, and, and the, the kid tries, tries so hard to get this Barbie to stand on its own. And, of course, he, he fails in his attempt to do that. And then the speaker comes out and he says, 
none of you could have done this because the people who made the Barbie designed it so that it couldn't possibly stand on its own. That's, that's how it was designed. And of course, the reason they did it was for some awful marketing purpose or something. They wanted you to buy these special shoes that would let it stand on its own or something. But, um, but the, the, the analogy was perfect because the same thing that is true of that Barbie is true of us. We are designed to be dependent on someone else. We are designed to submit ourselves in humility to the one who created us. We have a creator, the one who we believe formed us together in our mother's womb, the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the one who has made us into a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. We're called to be children of our father who loves us. And so for that reason, Christ tells the disciples, you won't even be a part of the kingdom. You won't even be a part of the kingdom that I'm coming to establish unless you turn and become like children who depend for everything on their father. Uh, Jesus, in another passage in John chapter 15, says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So the bearing of fruit, contribution to the kingdom, greatness in the kingdom of heaven is dependent on abiding, depending on the vine who is Christ. He later says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So when the disciples come to Jesus and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They assume falsely that they can contribute anything apart from what he has already given them. And this is a theme throughout the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. Just like we see over and over again the human tendency and desire for us to stand on our own, to root our identity in what we can accomplish and what we can do, so also we see the stark and blatant reality that no matter how hard we try to stand on our own, we can't because God is our Father. He created us as his children, written in the very fiber of our being, is dependence on God. The greatest lie, the greatest lie of 21st century America is that dependence is a weakness because the truth is that dependence is written into the very fiber of our being, and that's good news. It's not weakness. It's who we are. Being dependent on God is the best thing for us. Why? Because he is love. Because he is the good shepherd. Because he is the father who longs to give good gifts to his children. And yet when it comes down to it, there are times in our lives when we don't want to be dependent on God. There are areas of our lives that we want to be our own. We become like the child who sadly tells his parents, I don't need you for this. And if we believe that that is sad, that that is devastating, that that is unnatural, how much more devastating is it to the Father who made us, who knows the, longing of, the longings of our hearts better than anyone else? How devastating it must be for him if he sees us trying to rely on ourselves. Uh, we tell God, I've got this. I don't need you for this. Maybe we want to rely on our own intelligence, on our own expertise, on our own education, our strength, our own compassion, our own love. This is sin in its most basic and primal form. That's what Adam and Eve said to God. We don't need you. 
We'd rather be like you than be dependent on you. And Jesus knows that this is a human desire that's been in us since the fall. And that's why he tells the disciples, turn, turn and become like children. See, our taking the lowly position, the humble position of a child, requires change. That word turn is not, it's not a trivial sort of change that's being implied. It's, some, it's from the same root word that means repentance. It is a, it's not a trivial sort of change. It's a, a life-altering submission, a life-altering submission of our innate desire for success, prestige, glory, honor, accomplishments to the one who can truly fulfill us. It's an identity-shattering sort of change. See, Jesus is calling us to shift our identity from what we can accomplish on our own to instead make him our identity, to make Jesus the root of what defines who we are. And this change, this conversion, it doesn't happen all at once. That's the Christian life. That's what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction, a journey to becoming less and less enamored of ourselves and more and more enamored of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's, it's simply a journey of becoming less us and more him. Jesus calls the disciples to turn and become like children, to take on a humble position. And what better example do we have of that than of Jesus himself? God himself, who took on flesh, who made himself obedient unto death, who prayed in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Who who was willing to submit himself even unto death. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, says, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. In Galatians 2, he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that Christ has called us to is a life of becoming less so that he can become more. And we find that as he becomes more in us, in our lives, then, then and only then, can we be great in the kingdom of of heaven? Then we become patient. Then we become kind. Then we become willing servants because that's what Christ is and he lives in us. That's, That's the Christian life. When Christ lives in us and when we become more and more like him, we really do become great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to close by um, showing the, fi- the, the sort of end of the story of Debbie and Rotem, and then we'll, we'll uh, talk just for another second. It's very hard to walk a two-year-old because you're down on your hands and knees practically onto the floor. I said, there has to be a better way. I started finding ways to attach Rotem to me. I put straps around our legs together. I made shoes out of wood. I tried different kinds of connections until I got to the first working version of the UPSI. I wanted him to know if he can hold himself up, we're gonna walk. And in the beginning, I did this once a week. By the end of the year, we were walking a few hours. And what was amazing was 
if we got closer to something that Rotem wanted to get to, his feet were pulling me and I could feel him moving. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think that that, that is a picture of what greatness looks like in the kingdom of heaven. That's what greatness looks like for us as followers of Christ. It's not what the world views as greatness, but when we give up our aspirations for success, when we give up our our basic human desire to compare ourselves to one another, we find that we are able to walk best when we walk attached to God, when we walk connected to the vine. We walk the best when we walk as little children connected intimately with our Father who loves us. The good news of the gospel is that we have been offered a chance to take the position of a lowly child and to walk in harmonious step with our loving Father. When we do this, then we find life because from the beginning we have always been his children. So let us go this week Let us go this week into our world and let us walk, not as self-sufficient individuals, not as people who are climbing the ladder of success, but let us walk connected to our Father with the knowledge that he is able to keep us from falling, with the knowledge that he will make our paths straight, with the knowledge that he is a lamp unto our feet. And when we do that, we find that we truly can be great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.